Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event, in which UK Poet Laureate Carol Ann Duffy speaks with New Zealand broadcaster John Campbell, supported by British Council New Zealand. Carol Ann Duffy is Britain's Poet Laureate and the first woman and the first Scot in the role's 400-year history. She is one of the most significant names in contemporary poetry and the author of books for children, plays and celebrated poetry collections. Her work is marked by its wit, its intelligence and its accessibility. We hope you enjoy this session. Our guest today here is wonderfully Carol Ann Duffy. Last night, Carolyn, a Paralympic gold medalist, Mary Fisher. Mary, are you here? Yay. A Paralympic gold medalist named Mary Fisher, who was here, and who in fact won four medals in London and set a world record in one event, tweeted that she was excited about being here today. Excited. Not about a major sports event or a holiday or a long four and very big night out with mates, but a poetry session at a writer's festival. And Mary, I think we all know what you mean. In this book... The Bees, there is a poem called Premonitions that is so good that discovering it for the first time uh, was a kind of epiphany. And that feeling never dulls. Premonitions never tires under the repetition of my reading. It never ceases to affect me and to make me sad. How do poets do that? And why did Carol Ann Duffy decide to start at the moment of her mother's death and work backwards, not with the unravelling of us that death brings, but away from death and age and illness and back, back towards a time when her hair was not ash but red, when her young hands were warm, back to the loving litany of who we had been. Poetry can do that. But here's the thing. In exactly the same collection, this brilliant collection, in this staggeringly good poem, Last post, she tells us poetry can't do that. It can and it can't, the hopeful and the real. And Carol Ann Duffy's brilliance is that she makes both these contradictory outcomes possible and somehow both correct. And perhaps, Mary Fisher, that is why you and I and everyone here today is here, because Carol Ann Duffy tells immutable truths in the most human of ways. In the Plowman's Lunch, there's a tremendous scene in which two miserable, cynical pricks played by Tim Curry and Jonathan Price are watching their friend at a poetry reading. And their friend is taking questions from the audience. And someone asks him, what is the role of the poet in society today? And Tim Tim Curry's character breaks into uncontrollable laughter, guffawing, baritone, contemptuous laughter. It's a brilliant scene for all sorts of reasons but I really want to know the answer. (laughs) And I think I'm with Frank O'Hara when, in response to confusion about meaning in his poetry, he replied, everything is in the poems. Well, what is in Carol Ann Duffy's poems? The unique and universal business of being human, of course. But Carol Ann, your poems affect me most when they drill down into your particular way of noticing. The world's wife is the large manifestation. Fiona, I see you down the front. Hi, Fiona. The world's wife is the large manifestation of this women behind the scenes, women behind the throne, women behind history, to quote Jeanette Winterson. They are noticed, yes. And then they notice, and so we see them, but we also see because of them, through their eyes, with them. 
And elsewhere, we see Carol Ann Duffy's mum and dad, premonitions in this and pathway, such beautiful poems. Or we see Harry, Tommy, Wilfred, Henry, Bert, and World War I all lost. Or we go to Stafford Girls High and we see Josephine June stripped of the head girl's badge and sash, lost to something absurd and larger than her. And when we just stop to notice them, when we are made to realize they were and are there with us, Carol Ann Duffy's immense gift to us is the sadness and comfort and consolation and relief of a most human solidarity. We are all in this together, noticed or not. Ladies and gentlemen, the Poet Laureate, Carol Ann Duffy. God, I can't recall when I was so nervous. <laughs> Holy shit. He's made us have wine. <laughs> yes, we're both drinking. That was my fault. <laughs> um, so, so, gosh, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, so what, so what, Caroline, you're a bit like Frank O'Hara in that you, that you like writing the poems and you like reading the poems, but you don't especially like talking about them, Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen for people to read my poems, but not necessarily to read me, as it were. <laughs> um, so I find the um, kind of public bit of it um, not, not something that comes naturally to me. Oh. So I, I like reading my poems, but not necessarily um, doing this kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, you have a total sparkle in your eyes. You act... Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> I got... I got the bottle delivered out here. I have one here. <laughs> and you look naughty, which is wonderfully encouraging at this stage of the hour. Thank you. So um, what we're going to do is you're going to do some readings. And, 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 so, and these are poems you've chosen because they mean something to you and they work together. And so you'll do readings. And then after each reading, we'll have a chat about what and why. Yeah, that sounds okay. good. Do you want to hear some? Yeah, love okay. to. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming. I've had a wonderful time in your lovely city and I really didn't know what to expect, but I think you have one of the world's best festivals here and I'd be very privileged to be part of it. Um, not least performing the world's wife um, with Fiona and Rachel for the past couple of nights. Um, so I thought I'd start with some poems from the world's wife. Um, these were poems that I wrote because I wanted to revisit all the stories from my childhood, my school days, which had stayed with me, um, made me not only the writer that I became, but, but also, in a way, the person stories from fairy tale or mythology or history or the movies, popular culture. And the very first one I wrote was um, the story of King Midas from Ovid's wonderful book, Metamorphoses. Interestingly, Shakespeare's favorite book as a schoolboy. And in those stories, everything and everyone is subject to often magical change. And Midas, of course, was given a wish by the gods and asked that everything he touched would turn to gold. And this enthralled 
and enchanted me as a child. But when, as an adult woman writer, I came to revisit the story, I found myself feeling very queasy, um, trying to imagine being his lover shortly after this wish was granted. <laughs> so here is Mrs. Midas. It was late September. I just poured a glass of wine, begun to unwind while the vegetables cooked. The kitchen filled with the smell of itself, relaxed, its steamy breath gently blanching the windows. So I opened one, then, with my fingers, wiped the other's glass like a brow. He was standing under the pear tree, snapping a twig. Now, the garden was long, and the visibility poor, the way the dark of the ground seems to drink the light of the sky. But that twig in his hand was gold. And then he plucked a pear from a branch. We grew fondant d'autumn. And it sat in his palm like a light bulb. On. I thought to myself, is he putting fairy lights in that tree? He came into the house. The doorknobs gleamed. He drew the blinds. You know the mind. I thought of the field of the cloth of gold and of Miss McCready. He sat in that chair like a king on a burnished throne. The look on his face was strange, wild, vain. I said, what in the name of God is going on? He started to laugh. I served up the meal. For starters, corn on the cob. Within seconds, he was spitting out the teeth of the rich. He toyed with his spoon, then mine, then with the knives, the forks. He asked where was the wine. I poured with a shaking hand, a fragrant bone dry, white from Italy. Then watched as he picked up the glass, goblet, golden chalice, drank. It was then that I started to scream. He sank to his knees. After we'd both calmed down, I finished the wine on my own, hearing him out. I made him sit on the other side of the room, keep his hands to himself. <laughs> I locked the cat in the cellar. I moved the phone. The toilet, I didn't mind. I couldn't believe my ears how he'd had a wish. Look, we all have wishes, granted. But who has wishes granted? Him. Do you know about gold? It feeds no one. Aurum, soft, untarnishable, slakes no thirst. He tried to light a cigarette. I gazed, entranced as the blue flame played on its luteous stem. At least, I said, you'll be able to give up smoking for good. <laughs> Separate beds. In fact, I put a chair against my door, near petrified. He was below, turning the spare room into the tomb of Tutankhamun. <laughs> you see, we were passionate then, in those halcyon days, unwrapping each other rapidly like presents, fast food. But now I feared his honeyed embrace, 
the kiss that would turn my lips to a work of art, and who, when it comes to the crunch, can live with a heart of gold. That night, I dreamt I bore his child, its perfect oar limbs, its little tongue like a precious latch, its amber eyes holding their pupils like flies. My dream milk burned in my breasts. I woke to the streaming sun. So he had to move out. We'd a caravan in the wilds in a glade of its own. I drove him up under cover of dark. He sat in the back. And then I came home, the woman who married the fool who wished for gold. At first, I visited odd times, parking the car a good way off, then walking. You knew you were getting close, golden trout on the grass. One day, a hare hung from a larch, a beautiful lemon mistake. And then his footprints glistening next to the river's path. He was thin, delirious, hearing, he said, the music of Pan from the woods listen. That was the last straw. What gets me now is not the idiocy or greed, but lack of thought for me, pure selfishness. I sold the contents of the house, and came down here. I think of him in certain lights, dawn, late afternoon, and once a bowl of apples stopped me dead. I miss most, even now, his hands, his warm hands on my skin, his touch. And uh, another character from Ovid is Tiresias, um, famously mentioned in Eliot's great poem, The Wasteland. And I suppose Tiresias would have been a middle-aged man. Um, One day he went out alone for a walk in the woods, and on this walk he stumbled across two snakes who were attempting to mate. I have no idea what this might look like. Um, But he didn't like the look of it. And he prevented the coupling of the reptiles by beating them to a pulp with his walking stick, as you would. And, of course, the, the gods were looking down, saw Tiresias kill these snakes, and were very angry. So they punished him on the spot by turning him into a woman for seven years. (laughs) And then at the end of the seven years, he he could become um, a man again. So in this poem, I'm imagining if you were married to him, how you would deal um, with things when he came home from the walk, thus um, (laughs) chastised. Mrs. Tiresias. All I know is this. 
He went out for a walk, a man, and came home female. At the back gate with his stick, the dog, wearing his gardening keks, an open neck shirt, and a jacket in Harris tweed I'd patched at the elbows myself, whistling. He liked to hear the first cuckoo of spring, then write to the times. I'd usually heard it days before him, <laughs> but I never let on. I'd heard one that morning while he was asleep, just as I heard at about 6 p.m., a faint sneer of thunder up in the woods and felt a sudden heat at the back of my knees. He was late getting back. I was brushing my hair at the mirror and running a bath when a face swam into view next to my own. The eyes were the same, but in the shocking V of the shirt were breasts. When he uttered my name in his woman's voice, I passed out. <laughs> Life has to go on. I put it about that he was a twin, and this was his sister come down to live, while he himself was working abroad. And at first I tried to be kind, blow-drying his hair till he learnt to do it himself, lending him clothes till he started to shop for his own, Sisterly, holding his soft new shape in my arms all night. Then he started his period. <laughs> One week in bed. <laughs> Two doctors in. Three painkillers four times a day. <laughs> and later, a letter to the powers that be demanding full paid menstrual leave 12 weeks per year. <laughs> I see him still, his selfish, pale face peering at the moon through the bathroom window. The curse, he said, the curse. Don't kiss me in public, he snapped the next day. I don't want folk getting the wrong idea. It got worse. After the split, I would glimpse him out and about, entering glitzy restaurants on the arms of powerful men, though I knew for sure there'd be nothing of that going on if he had his way, or on TV, telling the women out there how, as a woman himself, he knew how he felt, his flirt's smile. The one thing he never got right was the voice, a cling peach slithering out from its tin. I gritted my teeth. And this is my lover, I said, the one time we met at a glittering ball under the lights among tinkling glass and watched the way he stared at her violet eyes at the blaze of her skin, at the slow caress of her hand on the back of my neck, and saw him picture her bite, her bite at the fruit of my lips, and hear my red, wet cry in the night as she shook his hand, saying, How do you do? And I noticed then his hands, 
her hands, the clash of their sparkling rings and their painted nails. Thank you. And uh, the last one I'll read from the world's wife is a very tiny poem that I stole from the diary of the wife of Charles Darwin, Mrs. Darwin. 7th of April, 1852, went to the zoo. I said to him, something about that chimpanzee over there reminds me of you. <laughs> It was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It's funny, it's funny because we all know these poems, right? Everyone in the room knows these poems and, and, and some of you will have seen them over the past couple of nights. But it's funny hearing them in company because I'd never... I mean, Mrs Midas, I just find that awful. Poor Mr Midas, what a bloody fool. And, and all I can feel when I read that poem is the awful constricting nature of his foolishness. Whereas actually, when you're with company, it's as funny as hell. Yeah, I mean, my sympathies with her. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> um, because, of course, very simply, the pursuit of, of greed and wealth... Oh, absolutely. ...costs him um, yeah. his, his love, his relationship, which I think happens... And his humanity. Yeah. 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 When, when, you, when, you, when you come up with something like... I mean, the, you, you write a lot more than you publish, don't you? So, you? so you are a prolific writer of poetry, but you publish much less of it. Is that right? Um, no, not really. I mean, I think if, if I begin a poem, I, I'll, I'll know that I'll finish it. Um, in a sense, the not writing of a poem happens before you right. write so that a lot of things have to come together before you put pen to paper. But, and once I have done that, I will, I will um, finish the poem and, and almost certainly publish it if, if it's um, good. But uh, there's a lot of silence um, before writing. So in that sense, I write a lot more that I never write, which... Um, <laughs> which might sound insane, but I'm mm -hmm. sure the writers here will know yeah. what I mean. So, so, so when he comes home and he's sitting in his chair, the look on his face was strange, wild, vain. Mm -hmm. See, I can't imagine a better description of how he would have looked as he took stock. So when, does that, when did that come to you? Do you remember that description coming to you? Did you have to wander away and think, how does he look, how does he look, what, 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 what you know, what? Or was that there straight away? Or did you, I mean, did, does that, are you standing in the shower and thinking, how's he looking? Are you making breakfast and thinking, how's he looking? Because that's perfect, isn't it? Strange, wild, vain. Well, I suppose a poem like Mrs. Midas might have given I had nothing else to do, um, taking two or three weeks of writing a few hours every day. And, and what you do, or what I do as a poet, is, is write into the poem so you, you never know. Um, where you're going to end. You know you're going into to something, into a, an imaginary world in this case. 
And um, those, those images surface through the journey of the poem. And it happens during the process of writing. So no, I wouldn't be in the shower and, and, and get those three words and then go to write Sprinting them down. Sprinting back to the desk, yeah. No. Um, it would come out of hours of journeying into the poem. And do you have moments... He was spitting out the teeth of the rich. Do you have moments where you sit back in your chair and think, oh, shit, Caroline, that's good? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was never quite sure about that one, actually, because... Um, if you look at corn on the cob, they're more like baby's teeth yeah. than rich people's teeth. Um, so it kind of almost does it. But not quite. You should, you should do this more often. You're brilliant at it. <laughs> dry, you're, you're beautifully dry. Mrs. Tiresias and, and, and If Men Had Periods, was that, was that just waiting to go in a poem somewhere? Because that's just brilliantly good and funny. Did you... Was that... I mean... Well, again, the idea of, of men or in this case, a man becoming a woman, um, I just found fantastically humorous. Um, I didn't, although I could have done in the poem, get, get as far as childbirth. I mean, I'm sure we all know that if, if that was the way around, we would be extinct. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, I was going to leap to the defense of my gender, but I just couldn't be bothered. <laughs> yeah, you're quite popular at the moment. So keep, you know. Yeah, that's right. Don't tempt fate. Yeah. <laughs> if it ain't broke. <laughs> um, so that, that was, you know, good fun too, right? But it, underneath it, um, the poem that kind of informed that, Mrs. Tyrese says, is... Um, Shakespeare's Sonnet 116, mm, which is so famous. Um, the one most used mm. at weddings. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love that alters, right alteration. Fine. So Mrs. Tiresias is quite prepared to love him as a woman, but he's too uptight. Um, and I don't know quite what's going on at the end, but she goes off with a woman anyway, even though he is a woman. Um, it's all to do with his uptightness and his views of gender and what you can and can't do, I think. I think one of the beautiful things is uh, Mrs. Darwin and the chimpanzee. This is Mrs. I Mrs. Icarus, which is just, God, she's fantastic. Can I, can I, can yeah, you yeah, belt sorry. this one out? I don't like reading that one. Uh, it's, uh, it's so good. I'm not the first or the last to stand on a hillock watching the man she married prove to the world he's a total, utter, absolute, grade A pillock. <laughs> it's funny. It's great. And the only time I've met Icarus in, in poetry before is, is of course, an Or is an Orden, so, so famously. But what, and then there's Freud, Mrs. Freud, Frau Freud, and the, and the, and the beautiful namings of, of the various names for penises. And, and what you're doing is you seem to be rather beautifully pricking the pomposity of history. You know, the received wisdom is... Often ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yes. yes. Um, I think what I enjoyed most about writing those poems was, was being subversive because of course th there was stories or lessons I learned in school um, and I carried that on a bit more in the poem you referred to, The Laughter of 
Stafford Goes High. It's a brilliant, brilliant poem. Oh, thank you. But I, I got to a certain age and I, I had all this stuff that I'd learned um, firstly in a convent school, then a girls' grammar school in um, Stafford in England. And I'd learned all this, this stuff because I'd been told it would help me in life. And I got to about 40 and it hadn't been of any use at all. <laughs> um, none of it. <laughs> So I thought I'd use it up by putting it in a, a long... <laughs> oh, superb. Yes, I really recommend that. It's a very, very long poem otherwise. Yeah. How much of it is true? All of it. Holy moly. Yeah. I don't know how many of you have read it. Gosh, it's good. I don't, we can't see, but it's warmly recommended. You can buy a copy of the book out the back. What are you, are you going to do some more read? What are you going to read f for us from now? Um... Some love poems, I yeah. think. Um, From Rapture. From Rapture. Lovely. So, um, these are some poems from a collection called Rapture, which tells the story of a love affair from its beginnings through all its ups and downs to its ending. And um, what I did in these poems, which are quite short, was make use of the sonnet form, um, which, as Shakespeare demonstrates, is the perfect form for the love poem, kind of the little black dress of poetry. Um, so many of these poems are formal sonnets, but sometimes they're informal, perhaps touching base with the sonnet form in their length. Um, and sometimes when the relationship is fracturing, I fracture the form of the poem. And because I wanted each of these short poems to focus on the moments that provoke them um, in the way that the, the grit in the oyster will provoke the pearl, um, I just gave them one-word titles. Um, so I won't introduce these poems. I'll, I'll just read a handful but I will read them in order of um, events. Text. I tend the mobile now like an injured bird. We text, text, text our significant words. I reread your first, your second, your third. Look for your small X, X. Feeling absurd. The codes we send arrive with a broken cord. I try to picture your hands. Their image is blurred. Nothing my thumbs press will ever be heard. Tea. I like pouring your tea, lifting the heavy pot and tipping it up so the fragrant liquid steams in your china cup. Or when you're away or at work, I like to think of your cupped hands as you sip, as you sip, of the faint half-smile of your lips. I like the questions, sugar, milk, and the answers I don't know by heart. Yet, 
for I see your soul in your eyes and I forget. Jasmine, gunpowder, Assam, Earl Grey, Salon. I love tea's names. Which tea would you like, I say? But it's any tea for you, please, any time of day. As the women harvest the slopes for the sweetest leaves on Mount Wu Yi. And I am your lover, smitten, straining your tea. Rao. But when we roused, the room swayed and sank down on its knees. The air hurt and purpled like a bruise. The sun banged the gate in the sky and fled. But when we roused, the trees wept and threw away their leaves. The day ripped the hours from our lives. The sheets and pillows shredded themselves on the bed. But when we roused, our mouths knew no kiss. No kiss. Our hearts were jagged stones in our fists. The garden sprouted bones grown from the dead. But when we roused, your face blanked, a page erased of words. My hands squeezed themselves, burned like verbs. Love turned and ran and cowered in our heads. Syntax. I want to call you thou, the sound of the shape of the start of a kiss, like this, thou. And to say after, I love, thou, I love, thou I love, not I love you. Because I so do, as we say now, I want to say thee, I adore, I adore thee. And to know in my lips the syntax of love resides and to gaze in thine eyes. Love's language starts, stops, starts. The right words flowing or clotting in the heart. And the final one from Rapture, art. Only art now, our bodies, brushstroke, pigment, Motif, our story, figment, suspension of disbelief. The thrum of our blood, percussion, chords minor for the music of our grief. Art, the chiseled, chilling marble of our kiss, locked into soundless stone, our promises, or fizzled into poems page print for the dried flowers of our voice. No choice for love, but art's long illness, death. Huge theatres for the echoes that we left. Applause, then utter 
dark grand opera for the passion of our breath and the Oscar-winning movie In Your Heart and where my soul sang croaking art. So thank you for your poetry and thank you for your generosity and your kindness and your warmth and being here today and coming out here. It's been a really fantastic hour with you and I feel, um, we all feel privileged. Ladies and gentlemen, Carol Ann Duffy. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website writersfestival.co.nz.